you have an inquisitive mind? Where do you go for answers? Imagine if the natural world held an answer to every question. Welcome to the Flowerhood Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Frankfurt. I'm on an orchard growing avocados and there's something going on. The more time I spend in nature, the more I learn about myself. Is it possible that until we connect with nature, we never truly flourish in our relationships, community, businesses or health? Oh boy, this is no ordinary gardening podcast. Join me at my kitchen table for wide and varied conversations with old and new friends from around the world. I'll be asking questions on how they connect with nature, what the research shows us, and look for ways we can incorporate these learnings into our lives. Let's get started. The English countryside. Village greens, pubs, cricket wickets, patchworks of fields, random road junctions, ancient woods, thatched roof houses, fields of rape, groupings of trees, hedgerows, winding lanes, market towns, farmhouse cheeses, occasional glimpses of stately homes, grand old pads, follies, cider country pubs. It fills me with joy, conjures up all those Ina Blyton books I used to read as a kid, the Jane Austen novels, and then of course from any hotel in the world, late at night you can tune in and always see a good English murder mystery that is happening in some ideal English village with some dastardly crime. So I mention all this about the English countryside because my guest today lives in the ideal rural setting in the county of Worcestershire in the West Midlands region of England. It's an area very dear to my heart and almost as dear as you, Peter. So Peter Kinnead, welcome to Flowerhood. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I was thinking about like, when we first met, and it was the late 1990s, and I was trying to remember when the actual first time I ever met you was, and I think it was when I was working at CCB, which is in Dryden Street, above an advertising agency, Baston Greenhill Andrews, BGA. Were you a client there? I was a client of BGA, yes. Uh, I was working for BMW GB at the time. And uh, they did a lot of work for us on sort of print work on and design work. Uh, not they weren't the advertising agency, but they did all the things the advertising agency were too expensive to do. So <laughs> we, um, yeah, we've got a lot of work. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's just like you, Peter, always looking after the pennies. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, well, that's a needs must these days, darling. Uh, you know, I'm an old pensioner now. I've got to. Uh, We've got to be very careful. Actually, I loved your introduction. I, I I was waiting for you to get the sort of village pubs and that sort of thing because, of course, that that that's probably more important than the church in village life these days. Um, but also, I ought to mention that our uh, vicinity—I uh, don't know how if it if it resonates at all in uh, New Zealand—but there's a very famous sort of radio show that's been on for, on the BBC for years called The Archers. Does it resonate? Is, is, is it known about in New Zealand? It's called An Everyday Story of Country Folk, and it's a soap opera on radio. It's about 15 minutes every day, and uh, everybody here sort of knows about it. 
Anyway, to cut a long story short, The Archers actually is based in a fictional village called Ambridge. Uh, nevertheless, the local village here, about three or four miles away, called Inkbarrow, is reputed to be the village on which Ambridge is based. In, and uh, the local pub called The Bull, uh, which is features in The Archers, is, uh, is supposedly the, you know, the, the Archers pub. And uh, actually, our old farmhouse um, is reputed to be one of the Archers uh, farmhouses that they um, talk about in the programme. So oh. um, there you go. <laughs> That's amazing. I want to touch on a bit later on about some of the other amazing connections that you have with uh, some very famous writers and things about where you live. First of all, there's a lot of people out there who don't know you, Peter. I mean, I can hardly believe that can be true, but it is true. So I was wondering if we could delve back to where where did you grow up as a child? Where, where were you from? Oh, okay. Uh, I, I come from uh, Essex, actually, uh, which uh, I don't know, Ken, if uh, Essex has permeated through to... Oh, yes. Uh, I'm sure many New Zealanders have heard of only the... What's that program? The uh, made, Only Ways Essex. Essex or Only uh, Ways... Made in Essex. Anyway, Essex is a sort of um, brash uh, nouveau riche county where people um, sort of uh, per, have permatans where the women all wear uh, white stilettos and uh, people sort of... Um, uh, drive cars that have been uh, uh, performance enhanced at a, a sort of a Halford store uh, with large exhausts and all that sort of thing. So you get the type of drift. And I actually came from the epicentre of that type of uh, behaviour and activity, Southend-on-Sea, which is a seaside resort around 40 miles from London, east of London. And in the uh, sort of halcyon days of the resort, um, Day trippers would come down by train from the east end of London, uh, all this sort of working class areas of London, and would come down to South End for the day and have a lovely day at the beach. But South End is uh, also uh, famous for its pier, the longest pier in the world, so they say, at about a mile and a half long. And um, it has a charming little train that goes up and down the end of the pier. So yeah, it's a yeah. Anyway, that's where I that's where I hail from. I managed to escape when I was eighteen, and I've uh, uh, apart from visiting my parents over the years, um, haven't really been back for any sustained time. Uh, my dear dad was uh, uh, well, he came from a very poor background. He was one of um, eleven children, and um, he made his way in life through. Uh, well, eventually, he got to be a a, a used car dealer, and uh, I suppose with that background. Uh, there was uh, that was one of the reasons I guess that I ended up sort of somehow or other in the car industry actually, uh, because my dad was a car dealer and uh, it seemed like a sensible way to go given that I had a bit of a grounding in uh, um, some elements of the uh, the business. Mm. So tell me when you were growing up then. So you probably always had kind of like did you always have like the smartest car on the block? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, the 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 thing with the if your dad anyone whose dad's been a huge car dealer will know this. I'm sure uh, my father would sort of um, come home in um, different things every night. You know anything that had been bought, anything that had still had some tax uh, road tax on it, he would um, tend to use for a while and then. And of course, um, anything half decent um, that that we all fell in love with would um, 
would get sold. So uh, no, uh, it was fairly unromantic in that sense, but very varied. You know, uh, one night it would be a mini, and the next night might night it might be a Jaguar. You know, it would be uh, very different. I suppose the lucky thing was that with my dad being in uh, a used car dealer, I had access to cars as well, and uh, I think I went onto his um, motor trade policy. Uh, and uh, as soon as I passed my test, I had access to the fleet. And um, so I was able to uh, run around in cars that uh, were above my station in life in general. So, yeah, it's quite good. Well, I imagine that would be very handy as a young man. Indeed, it was. <laughs> a young man about town was able Attracting to. Attracting the ladies. Indeed, indeed it was. Not that I was very successful at that, of course, but... Um, uh, yeah, it, um, it certainly got me out and about, and um, uh, for, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was great fun. I, I had an Austin Healy Sprite, a Frog Eye Sprite, um, for a while, which um, which um, certainly was a lot of fun. So tell me, what were your holidays like? Because if you lived in what was sort of seen as almost a bit like a holiday resort, or it was known as the the place that people day trip to, did you go away as a kid, or or were you you know, was it like, no, we've got it here on our back door? We went away uh, for holidays. Um, I seem to recollect as um, as a child, my most frequent holiday destination would have been down to North Devon. We went at least four or five times, as I recollect, to uh, a place called uh, Mort Home, which is near Woolacombe, which is just sort of um, right up there on, on the North Devon coast. It's very beautiful. We didn't, of course, in those days, uh, you know, I'm now 68, so we're talking about me being a kid in the 60s, the 50s and 60s. There wasn't much overseas travel. I think the first time I ever went abroad was on a school trip to France uh, when I must have been about uh, 13 or 14. And then finally we went, uh, I first got on an, air, uh, on an air, that was on a boat and a sort of a, you know, a bus. First time I ever got on an aircraft, I think I must have been about, 14 or 15, we went to Jersey for a holiday, which is, you know, part of the UK. And then at about 15 or 16, we went to, um, for the very first time, uh, properly abroad to Spain uh, from Southend Airport on the Vickers Viscount. We went to Tossa de Mar on the, uh, uh, what is it, the Costa Brava coast of Spain. And um, very good it was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh! I'm just sort of picturing. You know, it's, it's so interesting the way the the English. You know, there's this that you're so close to the continent. There is this whole kind of relationship that you have with France, and and also Spain. Like, where did that come from? Because so many Brits live in in Spain and go to Spain. Yeah. Well, it was the first. I suppose it is going back to that time that I'm talking about. The package holiday sort of started to develop, I guess, in the 60s. And Spain was the destination of choice for that type of holiday. It's funny, um, your sort of downmarket folk went to Spain on a package tour and more upmarket people would tend to drive in their rover to France and go to the Dordogne or somewhere, or, or Italy, of course, which was rather posh as well. So, yeah, there was sort of always been the... Uh, uh, I guess the uh, 
the thought of the grand tour, the grand European tour. So posh people did that. And yeah, and so a driving holiday uh, was what the middle classes did and the working classes got on the old aircraft and uh, went to Spain, got lots of um, cheap booze, uh, got red and um, made Benidorm famous. Came back as lobsters. Yes. Lying there, no yeah. suntan lotion. <laughs> yes, of course. The worst thing was that well, I say the worst thing, but uh, it, it still goes on today, doesn't it? Where the local entrepreneurs in Spain soon diagnosed that these Brits weren't terribly keen on uh, trying anything different other than their usual fare of bland food. So uh, they started to, you know, cater for their every need and. Um, you know, make um, English breakfasts and uh, give them meals with, you know, fish fingers and baked beans and all that sort of stuff, fish and chips. Uh, but, um, yeah, and that, it, it's become a bit cliche, but it's it, it's kind of true. A lot of um, people went abroad without necessarily really experiencing much of foreign life. You know, they uh, they spoke English a bit louder and ex- expected everybody to uh, respond in English and didn't didn't want to change their diet at all in general. <laughs> so tell me, after you left school, where did you go from there? Did you go into education or did you go into a job? Or No, uh, well, uh, I, you know, uh, I don't know how it is um, for you or what's for you or, uh, or how it is in New Zealand, but you suddenly sort of get to the end of your uh, school career and think, oh, damn, you know, actually it was worse than that. Oh, shit, where am I going to go next? Uh, you know, what, what, what will I do? Uh, will I go to university? Will I go on to college? Actually, uh, what I did was I got uh, sponsored by British Leyland, as they were in those days, um, uh, as a commercial student, uh, where I did a, uh, a degree in business studies. And I sort of worked half the year in, in, the, in various offices and all around the, the company. And went to college for the other half of the year, and I did that for four years and came out with a, de- with a degree at the end. But the, the nice thing was that I was paid all the way through by the company, um, so um, I didn't have to sort of um, go to the bank of mum and dad and get subbed by them or uh, or get a grant or anything like that. It's great. So, can you explain what is British Leyland? Ah, British Leyland was the British car industry. Really, it was all the brands that you would know from that that era. We're talking. I think I must have gone uh, when I joined it. It must have been in about 19, uh, crikey, uh, 18 on 1970 something or other. Uh, anyway, uh, so we're talking about Austin, Morris, Minis, uh, Jaguar, Rover, Triumph, all those brands lumped together in the conglomerate called British Leyland, which was uh, well known in those days for um, its shoddy quality. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, Propensity to strike at the drop of a hat, <laughs> and uh, you did crack uh, me up. <laughs> which, 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 which meant that the, which meant that the cars, uh, which meant that the company was uh, in continual crisis mode and uh, always short of cash and always, uh, always in the news as well, uh, because it was, to some degree, uh, it was a focus of British pride. You know, it was the the British car industry, but on the other hand, it was also a great focus of uh, discontent with the public because um, of the strike record, which was you know part of the British industrial scene at that time. So uh, yeah, interesting times actually, very interesting times. I, I learned a great deal about um, 
all, all the sort of, how can I say, problems that um, can come up in car companies in terms of, you know, uh, uh, PR disasters, um, in terms of uh, lots of too much stock and um, not enough customers all the time. <laughs> so it actually stood me in good stead throughout my career looking back. Yeah, I mean, well, the, you know, the company was just always in trouble. And um, so as a consequence of that, we would always be having to do panic campaigns in order to tr just try and shift metal, um, which is a sort of euphemism for selling cars. Anyway, you know, we had to sort of dig dirty into the, into the book of uh, really how not to build a brand and how not to market. It was all about just uh, tactical stuff to, to, from one disaster to the next to get, get cars out. And yeah, um, and some of those techniques, of course, e even in um, beautifully, you know, wonderfully run com companies like I joined in the after I left British Leyland, like BMW, uh, there, there are time to time times where you need to get down and dirty as well. And those skills that I honed at British Leyland certainly came in, <laughs> came to good use <laughs> later on. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Isn't it funny, like the way? Something that is kind of a disaster that you have to deal with in your life actually turns out to be the greatest well, lesson yes. that you end up using and getting further yes. because you did, did go through yes. it. I, I, yeah, I, I like to hear things like that. And I kind of like to think back, you know, what were those really difficult times and what did I learn from them? And Well, we, we were always happy to sort of, you know, motivate, uh, which means prod the dealers to try and sell more cars and to take more cars and to uh, move them from our books to their books and to on paper at least have a you know a financial result so and as i say uh, funnily enough um, some of the techniques that we used uh, back in those desperate days did still become quite useful in uh, with, with with companies that i've worked for later on in my career can you give me an example of what one of those techniques would be well, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, basically you're, you're giving um, your dealers huge incentives to take, uh, to take cars out of your stock and into theirs. Uh, of course, once, it, once cars are in their stock, there's a certain amount of pressure on them to sell. And so getting it into the dealer, it's like stuffing, uh, uh, it's like we, we used to call it um, sort of making sausages. The more you push in at one end, they eventually something <laughs> will come out the other end. <laughs> Oh my God, I call it passing the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yes, yes, interesting days. But, um, and of course, that was the uh, 70s, I guess, in the UK, which uh, was uh, quite a, yeah, we had the three day week, two day week, three day week, I think, in that period. And um, it was all a bit bleak, actually, come to think, looking back on it. From uh, British Leyland, then. Did you go to BMW after that? I did, yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I was, in, of course, I had to move from Southend-on-Sea to Birmingham to join British Leyland, and that was quite an interesting uh, uh, move from uh, from from the heart of Essex into the industrial Midlands. So uh, from Birmingham from and, B and BL, I went to BMW uh, in 1980, and uh, I was very lucky because a, a, a guy who I worked for at British Leyland. Um, who was the? Uh, uh, he was the brand director actually um, for Jaguar, 
uh, and I'd worked for him. Uh, and he he got recruited, headhunted to go to BMW as marketing director at BMW because BMW were just setting up a subsidiary in the UK for the very first time in 1980. Um, he had to recruit an entire department. Well, they had to recruit the entire workforce for the company. And um, this guy that I'd worked for at BL, Tim Greenhill, lovely man, good friend of mine, um, took me, to, uh, recruited me to go and uh, be advertising manager at, uh, at BMW, which was a lovely job for a young 26 or 27-year-old young man in those days. And uh, yeah, I've, I'm, forever, I'm forever grateful to him for the opportunity. So BMW rather sort of um, w- w- was very much a, uh, a brand for those times, I guess. Yeah, aspirational. So tell me, during so you and you, I mean, you were doing that. Gosh, in your twenties, like that is a phenomenal job. Well, yes, uh, and I was very lucky because uh, the guy who'd taken me there, Tim, uh, got promoted uh, about three or four years after I arrived, uh, and um, so he went to sales director, and I became marketing director uh, when I was about. Uh, must have been about 29, actually, 30. Yeah, so I was marketing director of PMWGB at, yeah, 29 or 30. I can't remember, yeah. Now, were you married at this time, or were you still single? No, I um, married, uh, actually, oh, dear me, I haven't, I've, a major milestone in my life that I failed to uh, mention to you, darling. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. you're going to be in trouble. I am, yes. No, I, <laughs> I married in 1987, uh, actually, before I left British Leyland. Uh, I married Jude, yeah, 1987. She was um, uh, my child bride. She was uh, only 19 and I was 26 at the time. And, uh, well, we're still together. So we've been together for now for, um, oh, crikey, 40, 40, over 40 years, 42, 43, something like that. Yeah. Congratulations. And I know Jude very well. And she is a, a just such a lovely lovely person and you guys are just the most amazing <laughs> couple <laughs> well you know I always love spending time with you I with do. you both yes so tell me when you were in South End I'm presuming you weren't actually living in the countryside no. in Essex you were living in town and then have you from, uh, during your kind of your career were yes. you always moving into town type situations or okay well that's when did you start to kind of go hanker towards the countryside countryside. well I guess Mm. um, to be frank with you that would be certainly when I came to Birmingham and worked for British Leyland uh, much as it sounds all very industrial and uh, uh, funny enough Longbridge which is where I was based which is the old Austin factory uh, is strangely right on the southern perimeter of Birmingham and it's uh, there's quite nice countryside uh, adjacent to it. So I used to go to college out at uh, a town called Bromsgrove, which is about uh, ooh, half an hour outside the, the factory on the southern sort of, out, but out in the countryside. And I sort of, you know, tended to live out in the countryside and, and either drive into college or drive to work. And the Worcestershire countryside is charming. So I developed a, a liking for being in the, in the countryside. However, when I talk about the countryside uh, and having visited New Zealand, I mean, our concept of the country and yours is probably a little bit different, isn't it? In as much as here I am in rural Worcestershire, but, you know, uh, within 20 minutes or half an hour, there's three or four fairly significant towns and you're never that far from anything 
anywhere in the UK, really. So you can get the feel of being in the country, but you're certainly uh, um, not not really out in the sticks. You know, you can uh, you can certainly find supermarkets and petrol stations and cinemas and uh, almost restaurants. You know, it's not isolated at all anywhere, really. Uh, even if you go, I don't know, uh, to somewhere very, very rural up to the Lake District or somewhere like that, where there's, you know, lots of lovely mountains and things and, and lakes. Um, you're never very far from any from, from civilization in reality. Mm. And um, I was thinking of something Bill Bryson had written, and it was, he, I think he said, an awful lot of England is slowly eroding in ways that I find really distressing. An awful lot of it is the hedgerows. We're reaching the point where a lot of the English countryside looks just like Iowa, ah, just okay. kind of I'm, I'm open thinking. space. Yes, I know what he's saying. What do you saying. think of that? I think uh, that's probably happened in parts of the country, East Anglia maybe, uh, where it's very flat and where they have um, sort of tended to make big fields. But I don't get that feeling particularly. It's pretty pastoral. I mean, the, the English countryside is very beautiful. In, I, I, I mean, I'm just trying to sort of um, think uh, throughout Europe. I mean, I think the landscapes are nice. I mean, the French countryside is, is delightful and different. And there's a lovely, you know, there's a different atmosphere about all these places. I think the, and I've come to New Zealand and, uh, you know, your countryside is magnificent. I think the difference here is the architecture in the villages. So, you know, there's a rich tapestry of, as you said in your introduction, of lovely little churches and very twee villages. And we're not far from the Cotswolds, which is a really, really very pretty part of the country with these with this beautiful sort of honeyed stone, which is typical of the all, all the buildings there. And it, and it weathers so charmingly and just, you know, wisteria growing up it and the, and roses and the whole thing and it and it is charming and uh, yeah and and I still get that from our from our countryside uh, you know it, it's it, I, I think Bill Bryson was being a little bit and uh, hmm, to say it's getting like Iowa uh, not that I've been to Iowa but I think I've seen it on the TV and that's um it's very bleak isn't it. <laughs> <laughs> And then speaking of nice little villages, where you are now, Dawnston, it's a very nice little village and you live very close. And actually, I mentioned this in the very first podcast I did. You, you live very close to Tolkien's, I think it was his Aunt Jane's Worcestershire farm, which That's right. yes. was supposedly Bag End, where Bilbo Baggins' house was based on. I'm not sure if that is like, is that true? <laughs> Do we know what that's, that's, a, that's absolutely true? right? Yeah, um, I, well, it's certainly reputed to be true. Mm. And I think the people who've chronicled um, Tolkien's life, uh, there's a book, oh, I think we've got a copy somewhere, I've forgotten who it's by, but I mean, you know, it goes through his whole uh, how he spent time in this holiday. He spent quite a lot of time there actually at the, at the mm. farmhouse. Yeah, uh, and they're absolutely certain that. Um, it was the inspiration for, uh, and the local area is quite a lot of the inspiration for, for, for what he writes about in, in the uh, in the books. So that farmhouse is, I, it's just a couple of properties over from from yours. These days it's called Dormston Manor, actually. Uh, it's, it, it's not grand enough, quite grand enough to be a manor, but it's a nice big old house. 
It's mm. about half a mile away, I would say. The, the people who live there are very private and uh, really don't encourage uh, the Tolkien connection very much. And um, because uh, I think they're rather frightened always that they're going to get sort of coachloads of tourists suddenly turning up and um, pouring all over the place. So, so they sort of calm it down as much as they can. Mm. But I have no doubt. I mean, the house itself is uh, is falling into some disrepair, really. I don't think they've got quite the money to look after it. The lady who lives there is getting quite elderly now, so at some stage it's going to um, be sold. And uh, I can imagine that it's quite possible that um, whoever gets it next might want to exploit the uh, Tolkien connection and it will suddenly become, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a landmark, I would guess. Yeah, well, I mean, wow, yes, that would be amazing. It is such a beautiful area, though, and I can really see when you le- read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, you know, that description of, I think it's a Middle Earth, yes, isn't it? Yes, and yes. it is that whole kind of Worcestershire area. Yes. Any corner of that county, yes. however fair or squalid, is an indefinable way home to me. Ah. And no other part of the world is. Well, there you and go. That's describing that area. Yeah. And it it is that feeling of home. It's like the yes. quintessential, beautiful feeling of home with those kind of green pastures. Yes. And yeah. then the little uh collection of oaks at the end of fields and yeah, so tell me when you and um, you live in a place called Moat Farm. We do. When when did you buy that? Uh, so we bought that in about nineteen eighty seven, I think. Uh, when I first, uh, yeah, I I I I rejoined Rover when BMW bought Rover. Uh, when we came back from Chile, I um, rejoined uh, Rover Group under BMW's ownership, and uh, was looking after that. Land Rovers UK sales company. So I was based uh, at Solihull in, in in the first instance, which is just part of is one of the suburbs of Birmingham, which is where the Land Rover factory is. So we needed to be living somewhere within reasonable striking distance of that. So uh, purely by chance, we found this house uh, out in Worcestershire. Judy comes from Worcester originally. Uh, so knows this area very well. And uh, it was one of those sort of impulse purchases, really. It's probably a vanity purchase as well. It sort of looks and looks very grand, but uh, we have a moat and all that sort of stuff. And we've got some uh, land here as well. But it was uh, you know, pr- probably, in retrospect, rather too much to take on because it was um, uh, not in a great state. Uh, I was, uh, how can I say, I was thrust into quite a fairly significant job and we were also trying to do up this um, this uh, rather decrepit uh, old sixteenth, uh, uh, sorry, fifteenth century house. So uh, it was uh, an interesting time, I think. Yeah, bit bit off more than I could chew. I think it would be the right term. How do you feel about it now? I- well, uh, I, we've had a charming time here. It's been very nice. Uh, we've brought our kids up here. It's um, been a lovely family house we've had uh, lots of um, fun here over the years um it's um it's kind of yeah it's a it's very nice to have a a house that has uh, that indefinable thing called character and it certainly has that in spades um so it's a timber framed house with uh, 
certain amount of brick, but um, lovely old fireplaces, wonky rooms. There's, but there's pluses and minuses to all these things. Um, so it has great character. Christmas, it's absolutely charming. The uh, the fires are, are super. The the beams sort of lend an atmosphere, and the whole thing's uh, enchanting. But of course, you've got to throw quite a lot of money at the uh, the thing to keep it comfortable in terms of um, heat, for example. I mean, you know, heating the place is a nightmare. But and you've been here in the summer. It's a nice summer house as well. Um, we've got a lot of land. We, you know, we've got some nice land that's our own, and um, we're not too. You can make a bit of a noise here without um, worrying neighbours too much, and uh, we can sort of drive old Land Rovers around our field, and we can. Uh, have motorbikes and all that sort of stuff. So we we've sort of been, as you well know, we've had had a few had a few parties here over the years, and it's been great. I do know, brother. <laughs> <Yeah>. Will <laughs> I've had I've had a, okay, everyone. I've had a few hangovers at Mode Farm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. More than anyone should ever have in their lifetime. <laughs> Put your fingers in your ears, all children. Yeah. <laughs> but it is the. It's this beautiful place with this large field at the back where, you know, you gather and we've done the Sunday roast and taken it down to the field and sat out there in the evening and drinks. And it's it's just picturesque and there's larks flying through the sky. There's hedgerows all the way around. It's this really beautiful, charming picture that just fits into you know into every storybook and then you have the reality of having a large piece of land when you buy a lot of land it's the upkeep and the you know especially if you're working yeah like, I mean I can't even like think how you did that you were trying to do a place trying just even mowing something yeah <laughs> well, yeah it's extraordinary isn't it? days yes it, and I find it hard. I've got, you know, I've got a tiny piece of land and it's 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 an effort. So it's something to think about. You know, we have these dreams. We we see this picture postcard thing. And then and then the reality is, is how are you going to actually cope with it? Well, the reality is, I, yeah, it is, it's hard work. Ideally, you need a bit of help as well, which we've had over the years. You know, we've always had a, a guy who comes and does a there's a certain I, I don't think we did in the early days we tried to do it all ourselves we didn't we didn't have the money maybe uh certainly when the kids are younger and going to school um and yeah we we struggled but of course i don't think we did quite as much in those days i mean the garden was uh was not as mature was a bit rough and uh uh, the other thing, the, the field. I mean, we it, we got about I don't know, eleven or twelve acres, I guess, in the field. Actually, we don't do very much to it. I cut some uh, I, with a with a uh, sort of lawn tractor. I cut paths through it so that we can uh, sort of go up and enjoy it and walk around it. But the field only really gets uh, the only work that that entails is it gets cut once a year, and the local farmer comes and does that, and you know, takes makes the hay and takes it away. So the field actually didn't um, take too much work. It's it, uh, we do have a moat, and that that sort of takes a fair bit of work. And then you know we've got more ornamental gardens as well, and uh, we've developed those over the years. And of course, the more you develop them, the, the harder the the more work you're creating for yourself up to a point. So we've got flower beds and uh, quite you know various bits and pieces and um, fruit trees and you know 
and some more ornamental type lawns and uh, all that does take a fair bit of work but I, I guess we you know we've got got it now down to a reasonably fine art we have a guy comes once a week and does all the uh, does all the gardening and I do the mowing really um so uh, uh, and we've got you know nice um Kubota tractor lawn tractor and a, a decent bit of kit actually I've got a I've got a I've got a lawnmower that comes all the way from New Zealand it's called a rotor roller or something yeah it's it's, in, it's got a Bridge and Stratton engine on but it's made made in New Zealand so do you ever look back and think you know about your life growing up in Essex and that life that your parents chose and then where you are now in in this such a different place and uh yeah i mean i occasionally walk around outside the house and, and look at it and go wow how did that happen and yes uh, very very lucky and very fortunate but interestingly i don't quite it's odd isn't it how um we choose a sort of lifestyle for ourselves i mean i think i probably i've had the opportunities at various times so i, I and i probably it, uh, in retrospect, financially, had I bought a sort of similar, laid out sort of similar money for somewhere in London 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I'd have done much, much better. And I'm sure we could have, uh, had I sort of um, chosen to live and work in uh, in and around London, I, we, we could have enjoyed a, a city life. Uh, well, we, we had a city life uh, living in Chile, actually, in Santiago, which is a big city. So, you know, how can I say, uh, I, I think you can actually, life can take you in totally different ways and you can still enjoy, you know, I don't think you're destined for, for one particular lifestyle. You just make the best of and really enjoy how life works out for you. But uh, I could have, I'm, I'm sure I could have been a city dweller and been uh, equally happy. You just do different things. Yeah, you do. You head off for the weekend to the country. Yes, 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 which a lot of our <laughs> friends have done over the years. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Or you go for the, you know, you hop in the car and, and drive to the forest to walk through. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Or you do what, what I've done, which is is come up and, and stayed with you. Yes. <laughs> stayed with the person who does have the absolutely yeah. beautiful... One of, one of the strange things you notice, and I don't know if it's part of the English mentality, is that particularly in London, there's a whole bunch of people who sort of try and um, give one another the cues, even in central London, that they're somehow part of the countryside set. You know, they'll wander around in tweeds and, uh, and uh, you know, in their Range Rover and all that sort of stuff with the typical country dogs and... Uh, uh, and so, yeah, there's this sort of hankering for the countryside and for the image and the idyll of living in the countryside that sort of people do hanker for some a lot in the UK. And I suppose it's in the literature, it's in the it's, it's sort of in the folklore, isn't it? And um, well, you talked about Tolkien and uh, his descriptive descriptions of it. So yeah, an awful lot of people who live in cities and in the urban environments. If you ask them, would say, "Oh, yeah, well, we, you know, one of these days we're going to get out into the country," and that seems to be the dream for an awful lot of people. And funnily enough, this late, you know, it's a it, it's a dream that um, more and more people are trying to make reality, particularly over the last few months uh, and or the last six months with the COVID crisis, where you know, cities in lockdown, uh, London is a ghost town right now, and uh, 
a lot of people have found that they can work from home and that location, you know, they don't have to be located in the city. They can, uh, they can be out in the countryside. You've got modern communications. Everyone's got the internet. You can, uh, you can actually do it. Uh, here we are having our meeting between uh, you and in New Zealand and me. Uh, it shows it can be done. It can. And, you know, that's such an interesting point. Like we're recording this in October 2020. And, and even here in New Zealand, people are questioning, do they want to live in the cities anymore? There, there is a property boom happening. And people are moving out to these areas of natural beauty, easy access to the countryside and things because it has been grim in even in places like Auckland, yes, you know, it's yeah. been grim. They've been in, in lockdown and you really start to question in your life, what are the really important things that you want? You know, what, yeah. what gives your life meaning? And if you strip away all the consumerism that's gone on over the last, really since like what you're saying from the, the 80s, yes where there has been this kind of need and greed and you know we're buying things the advertising is is always sort of encouraging us to want more yes, more yes, more yes. but actually when you stop all that and we've had that during covid you've yeah. stopped it yeah. and you're there and you're in your house and you start to look around at some of the stuff yeah. you have and you're like what are the things i really need and I think that's, you don't. I, what do you really need? Well, I do need, a, I do need um, stuff to, to keep, the lawn, keep the lawns in control. And uh, so you do, you do need that bit, some bits of machinery. But what else do I, I'll tell you what I need. You need stuff. You need um, somewhere to put the wine and uh, somewhere to cook dinner. Because uh, the, the nicest thing you can do is to have friends around and uh, eat and drink and, um, and have a great time. And you, you need all you need is uh, you know in, those ingredients really, and um, you know a barbecue, a, a, a few a few things, a few toys, and that's about it. You don't, you really don't need a lot of electronic devices. Although, although hang on, we do need them actually here because I, I wouldn't be able to communicate with you otherwise, would I? If I didn't yeah, yeah. And then what what happens if you can't have your friends around? Because you know there's still people who are you know, are in that situation where they're not allowed, well, they're in bubbles, they're not allowed more than, you know, five people or whatever. So I think you need that internet connection. You know, it for me, it, that actually, it's funny, isn't it? Like that, that, I don't, okay, do I really need it? No, I don't really need it. I want it though. Yeah, I want yeah, that. Yes. I want that connection. Yes. I want a good bookshelf with a couple of good books in it. Yeah. I still like reading a physical book. Yes. I think it is really important to grow your own vegetables or grow something, even if you're in an inner London flat, you know, to have something growing and to be connected with it's, growth. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, well, I know you, you do, you're doing growing stuff sort of commercially, the, the actual economics of uh, domestic, I mean, you know, we, we, we've got space here. I've got nice little raised beds. And uh, when I think about how much I spent actually creating uh, a vegetable garden and how much it cost me in terms of time and effort uh, and sheer money 
to produce uh, the potatoes, um, tomatoes, asparagus, and lettuce, and what else have I grown this year? Bean, uh, broad beans and peas. But it would be much cheaper to, to buy all that produce in the local farm shop. But um, of course, there is a certain um, satisfaction and uh, almost um, there's a bit of an ego fulfillment as well when you have friends around and you can actually say, ah, well, of course, everything on your plate apart from the meat has come from the, come from the garden. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, it is. And, and that's feeding that's feeding into that that ideal dream that they have of yes. the countryside oh I want to be you know shelling yes. peas yes. on the wooden kitchen bench ah, and, it's, 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 you know popping a few in my mouth and, and yeah. having that that sensation of that sweetness or I mean let's face it I mean tomatoes are always better if you grow them yourself commercial tomatoes are pretty bland indeed something actually crossed my mind when you said when you said just what you said about uh, uh the sort of the image the dream uh, there, there used to be a program uh, which I, again sort of tapped into that um, this sort of yen and yearning for rural life it was a comedy program on in the sort of 70s or 80s called The Good Life. Have you ever seen it? Um, it was absolutely a yeah. absolute hit in New Zealand. Ah, and okay. <laughs> Felicity, Ken Felicity yeah. Kendall, yes, Felicity it Kendall? was. Yeah, and uh, oh Richard Bryan, Richard Bryan, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, if I remember rightly, I mean, they were in a, in a sort, of, sort of urban, you know, urban setting, but you know, he had his sort of little small holding, uh in the middle of a little of a town or wherever it was and uh yeah and, uh, and it was all about you know grow, grow your own and uh and this yearning for getting back to basics and self-sufficiency <laughs> yeah and they, they had those kind of crazy kind of like macrame things going on yeah yes <laughs> yes yeah yeah, yeah yeah exactly exactly oh uh, oh look, look tell me the things that you just absolutely love about where you live. Funny enough, one of the one of the major benefits of being here is it's quiet. It's very quiet. And um, uh, uh, oh, I should be plugging this. We we actually have a uh, we have a little barn um, in our grounds, which when we first moved here, we converted it into a little uh, two bedroom dwelling. So it uh, and we lived in it while the main house was being renovated. Uh, so we lived in it for a year, and oh, since then, uh, once we moved into the main house, the barn sat there, and um, and various people came and stayed. And then Airbnb sort of started to develop, and uh, anyway, we thought, oh, I wonder if people would like, you know, if it, if it would work as a as a holiday rental. And uh, lo and behold, it has. It works absolutely incredibly. We get people from all over the place coming, not only from the UK, but uh, from, from abroad as well. And of course, uh, uh, the point of the story was that everyone who comes, one of the things that they say is just how quiet it is. And that is a benefit. I mean, you know, it is nice and peaceful. And, you, you know, there's no sort of roar of a motorway anywhere nearby. There is, uh, yeah, it's just peaceful. And you can take a walk and, uh, and uh, re really hear the bird song. Uh, yeah, you you can sort of commune with uh, commune with the world and uh, not feel the intrusion of life too much. 
Uh, having said which, of course, you know, uh, I, I can't pretend that we, if I go out at the night, that I can look up at the night sky that without some certain amount of light pollution and all the rest of it. It's not, uh, we're not that remote, but it, it is nice and quiet. So that's one of the major benefits. I guess the other benefit is that it's funnily enough that you're not that far from things really, you know, so yeah, we've got, you know, several pubs around quite significant towns, not that far away. There's a hospital, uh, funnily enough, I'm very pleased that there's a hospital only 15, uh, about 15 minutes away. I've just broken my wrist very badly and um, had to go there on an emergency. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, civilization is not very far away. And, uh, that helps a lot. So you get the benefits of the countryside and not so many of the drawbacks. So no, I can't think of anything. Uh, it's lovely to get to London. I mean, you know, we are, uh, we live in the country, but we like the city. Uh, I'm not going to knock the city. It's great to be visit. Uh, so we're only, what, a couple of hours drive. Um, in fact, we've only just come back from London today, earlier on today, uh, drive up the M40. Um, Birmingham's not far away. Manchester's, you know, two hours north. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's Stratford-upon-Avon, just around the corner. Just around the corner, yeah. Um, just fantastic. Yes. And the Mulvan Hills and the as Mulvin well, Hills, which yeah. are yeah. designated as an area of outstanding beauty. They are. They are indeed. Okay. I yeah. mean, they're incredible. They're incredibly old, aren't they? They like, are, yes. Yes. Them. Yeah, there's been a sort of um, Iron Age or Stone Age settlement and things up there for, yeah, uh, it's... Uh, yeah, well, I, I should um, I should do a lot more on the natural history of the area. Actually, I'm not very good. We've got another lovely hill not far away, Breeden Hill. Uh, I mean, the UK, as you know, doesn't have many major mountains, but we we do have hills that are that do afford quite good views and uh, are nice for walking in. And so the Morven Hills are great. Breeden Hill is very nice. The Cotswolds not very far away. Broadway and Chipping Camden, lovely, beautiful villages. You're actually in a fantastic spot for uh, connecting with all different parts of, of beautiful parts of the UK. Yes, yes. So people can rent. You've got that up for uh, on Airbnb. At the Airbnb, moment. absolutely. So what yes. Search, what would people search for um, to find it? So uh, I, I've got a um, I, I've got a link I can um, provide for it, but um, what would so we'll put that into the show notes. Okay, and yes, that'll be yeah, on yeah. our website. Okay, I'll send that. And on then you. uh, you'd, you'd have to search the Dovecote. It's called Dovecote Barn, and it's uh, Dormston is our location. So I think if you put Dovecote Barn Dormston into the search, it'll come up. Okay, and it's D O V E C O A T. C O T E, dove coat. C O T E. Yes, <laughs> not not coat as in C O, not as not, not, not a coat that you wear. <laughs> Alex, no. Just as well you haven't got me doing yeah. the marketing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd like you to actually because you're you're so much more um, literate on uh, on on uh, using uh, social media than I am. Oh my God, I'm I'm that is that is a fallacy. Is it? Oh. I am bad really? on social media so I, I put together an Instagram account yes for Flowerhood and and then I just forget to put anything up on it oh. so um, yeah apologies to everyone who goes on to that yeah. <laughs> no I'm I'm a I'm a poor example of oh. social media I have um I kind of yeah I did used to use it a lot and then I I don't hardly ever use it you know I was even considering what would happen if I deleted all my Facebook page and things like that but the thing is 
I wouldn't be able to stay in touch with beautiful people no, like you. Oh, because at the end of the day, when you've travelled around the world and you've lived in different countries, it is amazing that you still can, you know, yeah. I find Facebook good in that respect well, is yes, that yeah. I can kind of pop in and out of people's lives. I feel like I'm still part of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not that it's a plug for Facebook. Yeah. Facebook, but <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps it is. Yeah. yeah, but there's nothing like um seeing people in person. So Peter, I have one more question: Is Worcestershire sauce really from Worcester? Uh, probably not anymore. It's probably uh, I think it's owned by I think yeah the company uh, is now owned by Kraft or someone like that with some American. Leon Perrins is the uh, uh, was the original company name. Leon Perrins Worcestershire sauce. Uh, yeah, it was actually made in Worcester, no doubt about it. Uh, I think the old Leon Perrins factory is still around there, but it, I don't believe it's made there anymore. No, no, it's uh, so uh, I'm sure that they will tell you that the uh, recipe to which it is made is original and true. But uh, the location is no longer the case, sadly. Even uh, the uh, the other classic would be uh, Royal Worcester Porcelain, which uh, sadly no longer exists. Um, or if it does, maybe they import stuff from China and you know brand it Royal Worcester. Um, but um, no, it's all 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 a bit sad. I'm afraid that type of stuff all gone. Hmm. There's a club factory, I think. Uh, oh, oh, there's a few factories still left in Worcester. Worcester Bosch. Uh, a glove factory. Dents, yeah. Oh my D E N T S, yes. Dents. Uh, been wow. there since about 1880, I think. Oh, I love. Well, I'll tell you what, as soon as we get to fly again, I'm yeah. coming back over to Europe. You who better, it's, darling. I kind of like to go and have a look around a glove factory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but that kind uh, of like piqued my interest. Yeah, yes. It's the idea of having all these kind of hand models yes, yeah. and things. <laughs> I, I, I see you. I, funny enough, uh, what you're wearing today would uh, look good with a pair of white, uh, white uh, sort of gloves up to about oh. your yeah. Don't you think? Okay. Okay, I tell you what we'll do. As soon as we get we finish this one up, I let's take a photo of us yeah. and then I can pop that up on, on the page as okay. well. So I've got a right. shot of, of what we're both seeing because okay. frankly no one knows what the hell I'm wearing. <laughs> Dream on. Dream on. Dream on. <laughs> You're just lucky I'm not in my pajamas doing this. Well, um, I think I've seen you in those, so it's not a problem. <laughs> yes, well, just as long as you've seen me in the pajamas. Uh, yeah, it's not out of them exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's all right, Judy. It's yes. all right, Judy. Goodbye. Yes, yes. Nothing, nothing happening nothing here. Un, nothing up to all. Peter, it's been an absolute joy. Thank I you, thank you so much, and thanks for sharing about your. You know, I I never really knew like the story of of where you came from, and ah, okay. I mean, I'm even thinking back to your dad. Did you say he had eleven? He was one of eleven children. Was that your dad? Yes, he was. Yes, uh, he was. Yes, think you said that at the beginning. That's amazing. I'm just trying to think if I. There was there used to be a photograph of him and his and his, all his brothers and sisters all in a little line. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, and, very. You poor. know, I've got to like salute you. You've had an amazing career, and it's really. Interesting, and it's inspiring to hear that 
the different phases and going through those different decades and yeah and you know it's you're paralleling what happens obviously in in the um politics of the day yes, and, yes. and what's happening in in the the sort of consumerism that yep. happened during the 80s i find it just fascinating yeah, yeah. but then i love the fact that where you are now is you are in this little piece of england and it is incredibly beautiful and the fact that you have a place on airbnb so people can actually come in and share they this can. is can, great indeed. so and i encourage everybody Look, I know some of you can't travel at all at the moment, but as soon as you can, come and stay in this enchanted place, this beautiful little part of England. Thank you for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Good. And, and for me, thank you very much. My heartfelt thanks for listening all the way to the end of this Flowerhood podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to the show, like and review it on your favourite player. Be part of the greater Flowerhood community. Join the Flowerhood Facebook group and find show notes and information at flowerhood.com. I can't wait to share the next episode. Until then, hey, why not stop and smell the roses? <laughs>